Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. The surprise mechanics of the UK's troubling new loot box gambling report. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today, the United Kingdom has once again entered the news. Actually, yesterday was the date on which I saw this article, and it was brought to my attention on Twitter. If you follow Virtual Legality, if you follow this channel, you know we have talked uh, some great extent about loot boxes, about gambling, about regulations in various countries in the EU, about the Federal Trade Commission and their workshop and what they're doing with respect to whether loot boxes should be treated as gambling in the United States. And we also talked or earlier this year, only a couple months ago, about Britain, the United Kingdom, and how they are treating loot boxes, how they have interpreted their current regulations uh, to inform whether or not they can do more about loot boxes, about potential gambling, about video games in general. And yesterday, it was brought to my attention on my Twitter that the United Kingdom had spoken again on this. In this particular case, it's actually speech from a committee of theirs, from uh, their commons committees, which I believe, and I'm no United Kingdom lawyer, I am a United States lawyer, I believe is essentially the equivalent of one of their House of Representatives committees. And they do uh, investigations, they discuss various things about whether or not they should change the laws, what they should do about the laws. And in this particular instance, a committee found uh, that they should do more about loot boxes and gambling and a bunch of other stuff that we're going to talk about in this video. But this was brought to my attention uh, by Joseph LaRussa on Twitter, at Joseph LaRussa. I always like to give a hat tip when these things come up. And he says, oh, Hogue, loot boxes are back in the news. And I responded, I'm not sure I have a time to do a video today because thankfully Hogue Law has been inundated with clients and with work this week. Uh, but I do have time right now to talk about it with you all. So I want to dive into that by setting the stage uh, for what has happened in the United Kingdom over the past few days and what this report actually says. First, though, I wanted to point out that, as I mentioned, we did definitely cover this on a podcast in video, uh, in an, a video entitled FIFA Fuhrer, Why the UK May Have Just Stopped Loot Box Bans. In this video, I go over why they think they can't ban loot boxes. And when I say they in that particular sentence, what I mean is their gambling commission which again, as a United States lawyer, I'm not fully up to speed on how all of these things are organized in the United Kingdom, but what appears to be what would be the equivalent here of an executive branch type office, like the Environmental Protection Agency or the FBI or somebody like that, that actually has the authority to enforce the laws that are on the books and decide exactly how they're going to treat them. And earlier this year, in July, they actually said, FIFA packs and loot boxes are not gambling. This is because there is no official way to monetize what is inside them. A prize has to be either money or have monetary value in order for it to fall under gambling legislation. Gambling Commission Program Director Brad Enright admitted that games publisher EA, which sells the football team management game FIFA, 
faced a constant battle against unauthorized secondary markets, which is what would give something that you purchased in a video game monetary value, but that they don't officially endorse that process, essentially. And then they had a chief executive officer from uh, the United Kingdom come out and speak about that issue to their committee, which is who spoke uh, in the last few days. And they said, they admitted that there were significant concerns around children playing video games in which there were elements of expenditure and chance. However, he added that under current legislation, it did not classify as gambling. There are other examples of things that look and feel like gambling that legislation tells you are not, like prize competitions because they have free play or free entry that are not gambling, even though they look like a lottery, he said. And so this is the current state of play before yesterday, before anything happened that we're going to talk about on this video. But that's what it looked like a month ago with the actual executive side of the government in the United Kingdom saying, hey, it's not gambling, because as we've pulled up right now in the Gambling Act of 2005, the thing that is most related to what we're talking about right now would be classifying it as gaming or as a game of chance. And one of the things that is required to make something a game of chance is that in this act, prize, they have to get a prize, in relation to gaming means money or money's worth. And that's really what it comes down to. And we've talked about it in virtual legality. We have this language in any number of state gambling laws that we've talked about in the past. But basically, it means we as a society, as a government, whoever passed these laws, whoever's looking at these laws, wants to make sure that we're not accidentally dragging in extra stuff that doesn't really relate to money or money's worth. Now, money's worth, as you might suspect, even if you're not a lawyer or you don't regularly look at statues, is a pretty vague kind of term. It's not defined for purposes of this act. But in general, I think it's most closely associated with chips, right? If you're gambling and you get chips, uh, if you're gambling and you get something that is a card uh, that's the equivalent that you can turn in for money, they want to make sure they capture that. Uh, and not just limit it to cash because you don't want people to get away with essentially having gambling establishments, facilitating gambling if they're not using cash money of whatever nation you're talking about. So you want to cover things that are the equivalent of money, money's worth. However, there is a legitimate question about whether or not something that has a vibrant and perhaps endorsed secondary market, meaning a market where you can take whatever prize you've won and sell it, whether that has money's worth. And I think the argument makes a lot more sense the closer you get to uh, the actual company that is facilitating what might be considered gambling is to facilitating the secondary market. If they say, hey, here, we'll take your money. Here's a loot box. Here's that thing. Do you want to sell it back to us for 50 cents? If it's directly in the application, I don't think you can actually argue the point about whether there's money's worth. The question then becomes, all right, if it becomes attenuated, if the company isn't actually facilitating that secondary market at all and is in fact putting out press releases and things that say we don't want secondary markets, can you actually impose upon them the regulations that are associated with gambling? And what we will see is that a lot of these people, in particular in this committee in the United Kingdom, wants to do that. And I think that there are legitimate questions to be raised. I think there's legitimate arguments to be had. But the main thing I want to say in this video, and I want to talk about it, is what power law has, what the proper procedure is to kind of change it, to reflect upon it, why I think the United Kingdom committee's recommendations as they stand as of right this second are wrong and wrongheaded, even though they might have legitimate reasons for backing up a stronger regime on these questions. And that's primarily because I'm a lawyer. I'm a rule of law guy, and I want to talk about what that means. And in this particular case, that means that the regulation on the book has this requirement, means money or money's worth. And I don't think it makes sense to reinterpret language that's already been in existence, that has been interpreted for a long time now, in a different way 
because you've identified a problem, particularly if you're on a committee and you are a legislator in the United Kingdom or in the United States or anywhere else, I think it is your ambit. It's probably your duty or responsibility if you think there's a legitimate problem to actually go and seek a change in the law. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about because I see that happening less and less nowadays. I see that happening less and less with various things coming out of various executive branches across the world, various debates that may or may not have happened in the past few days where people are very, very willing to say, I've identified a problem. And instead of saying what we used to say 20 years ago, which I also had a problem with, to be honest, which is there ought to be a law. Instead, people are essentially saying, well, that law that's currently on the books, we can twist it. We can change it to what it needs to say. Or if that fails, we can make an executive order to do what we want to do because we've identified this harm. And I think that's no way to run a railroad. I think that's no way to run a society, primarily because you wind up having essentially personalities and identities deciding what the law means on an ad hoc basis. And when the next person gets that pen or that phone or takes that position and decides to interpret it differently, you lose all ability to really have a stable law, to really have people that aren't legislators, that aren't politicians, that are just trying to get by and understand what they're doing and whether or not it's legal or illegal. You lose that sanctity. You can't understand what it's going to be if it's reinterpreted every two seconds. And honestly, we talk a lot about it on social media. We talk a lot about it on Twitter and in other places. That to me is true authoritarianism. If you want to take over a law and just interpret it how you would like to address a problem, you can have the best intentions. You can be a total good faith actor. This isn't about whether or not these things need to get regulated. It's about whether or not the process they're going to recommend makes sense. Even if you are that good faith actor, it doesn't make sense for a process. We have an ability to amend laws. If you're a legislator, we have an ability to, to adopt new laws, go through that process, have that debate in the open, have that discussion rather than essentially trying to go through the back door, have a secretary regulate it uh, in a way that you prefer, have it interpreted in a different way if you're president or prime minister or what have you. I think that's the wrong way to go about things, and I think that's one of the things that they wind up advocating here. So I pulled up an Engadget article that says, UK officials call for loot boxes to be regulated like gambling. That would block the sale of those games to minors. This is from the UK government's Department for Digital Culture, Media, and Sport Committee, which is the committee that we were just referencing in my previous video and that we just looked at in that BBC article. This was a committee that was clearly looking at all these things. I believe this was the committee that the testimony from Electronic Arts, where they adopted the phrase surprise mechanics for loot boxes, which... You know, they have bad PR. What can I say about electronic arts? I believe this was who they were talking to when they had that moment in the sun. Uh, and they came out, they released this report. We are going to look at parts of this report. Now, I know I always say in virtual legality, you should look at the primary source material. I did thumb through the entirety of the report. It's long. It's a very government type document. So we're going to stick with the summary. We're going to stick with some of the abstracts that they put up on their own Commons Committee website, because I don't think we're going to have a lot of educational or informational benefit from reading through every line of that report. That being said, we can look at some summaries, and this is the first one from Engadget. They say the committee acknowledged that there isn't definitive evidence that using loot boxes can turn people into problem gamblers, but points to studies in teenagers which show that they are more vulnerable to developing problem gambling habits from loot box play than adults are. The issue isn't that loot box mechanics turn people into gambling addicts, experts said. It's that they take advantage of some people's psychological predispositions to gambling. It is not that it is a gateway. It is that it is a way that video game companies may accidentally or incidentally be profiting from problem gambling among their consumers, Dr. David Zendel told the committee. And this is the crux of the issue. This is essentially a political question, so I don't want to get into it too deeply, but the, the question really is, uh, on whichever side you fall, if people are otherwise fine with it, if a lot of people are fine with it, if adults in particular are fine with it, 
is it okay to take drastic steps to change the formulation of what, in this case, a video game company is putting out there? Because, and we can acknowledge this, we can give this uh, as a given, some people might be uh, deleteriously affected by those things. They might be harmed uh, by them. And maybe it's a small percentage, but if there's anybody that gets harmed, do we have to take these drastic actions, even if a lot of other people are totally fine with it? And that's the fundamental question here. And I think it's a fundamental question that is absolutely justified to be raised and to be asked in the legislature, in the halls of the House of Representatives or parliamentary commons or wherever else you want to have this discussion. I don't think you can just take it as a given from a subcommittee and have recommendations that laws be reinterpreted without having that discussion, because I think there are legitimate arguments on either side. I want to protect people from bad things happening to them, but I also want to let people who aren't going to have those bad things happen to them enjoy what they enjoy. If you've got the money to spend $2,000 on Overwatch and you're fine with it, go Spend $2,000 on Overwatch. If you're not fine with it, then you've got a problem and we should have steps in place to make sure that we can take care of you. But I view this very similar to other addictive qualities, other other vices that the governments generally address, such as let's take alcohol as a for example. A lot of people can get really hurt, really harmed by alcohol. I will tell you, I know people, I know families that have essentially a genetic predisposition to alcoholism and I know people that essentially avoid it for that purpose. And the question becomes, does society have an obligation to ban alcohol? Does it have an obligation to make sure that people that are negatively predisposed to getting alcohol can't get it? And I think, at least in the United States, we've decided that isn't the case, that for the most part, people that have that predisposition have to deal with it on their own because a lot of people can handle it just fine. But reasonable minds can differ whether that's the right course to take. Reasonable minds have differed, and we've had those discussions, certainly in the history of the United States, when we talk about prohibition and people that had success and saying, this is such a bad thing in our society, it should go away. The same with certain amounts of illegal drugs, which we are seeing kind of pushed back on in some cases with respect to marijuana in the United States. But other, uh, other drugs have a continuing stigma that may or may not be justified. I'm not here on virtual legality to tell you how you should feel about alcoholism, gambling addiction, gaming, or drugs. I'm telling you that from a rule of law standpoint, the way our society functions, it makes sense to have these discussions in the sunlight uh, rather than by parliamentary subcommittee or House of Representatives subcommittee asking for what is currently on the books to be reinterpreted. If you're going to enact a prohibition, if you're going to enact significant issues, let's get those on the books. Let's get those votes in the sunlight so that we can understand who's on what side, whether or not we agree with one side or the other, and that it's wide open. Because again, reinterpreting existing laws creates problems for everybody. The last line of this Engadget article really highlights that point. It says the recommendations from the committee here aren't laws. They certainly aren't. But the government may choose to take the recommendations and begin regulating loot boxes in the UK. Now, their use of the phrase, the government, is unclear. Certainly the way this report that we're about to look at uses the term government, it means the executive side of things. It means the gambling commission. And I would argue that just because this committee says you should do X, it doesn't mean that the gambling commission, the executive branch, these people that receive their authority by virtue of the words in the laws can just take it upon their own ambit to change how they're interpreted uh, outside of what the words on the page might otherwise say. If we want to change the words on the page, we got to go through that process to change the words on the page. That's how societies function. That's what makes sense. So let's take a look at first the summary of this report, because there are a few little highlights that I wanted to bring to your attention 
because I think they're interesting. They spend the first couple paragraphs essentially talking about the current state of society. They talk about 5G. They talk about the prevalence of virtual, lega uh, virtual legality, right? They don't talk about me in this article. They talk about virtual reality and augmented reality and whether or not that's going to be a problem in the future. They make a reference to Steven Spielberg's film Ready Player One about how virtual re reality is going to be a super drug. I got to tell you, I never much care for it when government documents start relating reality to, you know, science fiction movies, but to each his own. Then we get into what they're actually trying to address. That's all kind of recitals, the state of play. They say, yet alongside the use of rapidly developing technologies, such as virtual and augmented reality, people are becoming increasingly aware of the power of everyday digital platforms, including games and social media, to capture their attention and immerse them in a digital world sometimes at the expense of other priorities. Now, this is an important next sentence. For many, these technologies serve an entirely positive function. I will tell you right now, virtual legality doesn't exist if I don't love video games. I don't necessarily have the same life path that I do if I'm not learning different strategies and learning how to type and learning all manner of different things and bonding with my family over video games and just in general technological applications. They have served an entirely positive function in my life. I love them to death. I have a number of clients that help develop them, help facilitate the creation of video games. They have been a constant in my life and I feel nothing but positivity towards that industry, towards games in general. And that is an important piece of this puzzle. If you are going to constrain people's access to that in some fundamental way, you have to take into account that some people, like myself, have only these positive experiences. And to their credit, that's how they start this sentence. They then continue the sentence with, however, for the minority who struggle to maintain control over their use of digital technologies, those predisposed to addictive tendencies, especially if it's facilitated by games, or that, uh, or that of another under their care, uh, parents and guardians dealing with, in general, kids that have this issue, this can be a source of serious harm. I have no doubt that that is true. If you are familiar with any activity, any hobby, sports, video games, anything else, eating, drinking, then there are always going to be people that can't handle whatever it is that's put in front of them. And that is undoubtedly the case here. And I think it's a justified thing for government to be considering, hey, you know, do we need to do something about this? They say in this report, we talk about this. They say we also consider, and this is what we're going to talk about right now, the effects of disordered spending within games and consider the links between game design mechanics such as loot boxes and gambling. The potential harms outlined in this report can be considered the direct result of the way in which the attention economy is driven by the objective of maximizing user engagement. Generally, I would say, while that is taken with a full negative connotation in this report, maximizing user engagement isn't in of itself a bad thing. It generally means you're providing something to someone that they like. And the vast bulk of people, as far as I'm aware, don't actually spend money on free-to-play games. So it's a matter of how many people are satisfied with their arrangement with those games and how many are harmed. This report explores how data-rich, immersive technologies are driven by business models that combine people's data with design practices to have powerful psychological effects. There is no question that video game companies employ economists, they employ psychologists, they employ a lot of people to try to get the best bang for their buck when they create these resources. And I think what we're experiencing right now is a situation in which, for the most part, these video game companies have been so successful in that process that a lot of people are starting to look at that and say, well, maybe something's wrong there. And as part of that, in every case, as I've talked about earlier, 
there's going to be someone that was really significantly harmed. There's going to be someone that spent their mortgage money on a video game. There's going to be someone that is predisposed to addictive qualities, maybe in all sorts of things, but in video games where it wound up, and they're going to be able to testify on these kinds of questions. I don't think it's something the industry should ignore. I don't think it's something that the individual participants in the industry should ignore. I don't have a problem with these kinds of discussions. What I have a problem with here are the recommendations for those discussions, and that is what we're going to talk about right now. So that was the summary of the whole report. This is actually what I would describe as essentially an abstract or discussion points that they actually published on their own government website about what the report says. As I said, I skimmed through the entirety of the primary source material in the report because I like to do that, but I also like to not bore you to tears. So I will link the full report in the description of this video. You can check it out at your discretion. But I think what we're going to get through right now is going to cover the vast majority of what's actually covered in the report in terms of operative recommendations. They have a lot of evidentiary support stuff that goes into the report, which is interesting. And it's collected from all those committee uh, testimonies. Uh, But in this case, I think we can solely live with what their recommendations are. So I've highlighted a few areas here. The committee's report. The wide-ranging report calls upon games companies to accept responsibility for addictive gaming disorders protect their players from potential harms due to excessive playtime and spending, and along with social media companies, introduce more effective age verification tools for users. We're not going to talk about that last one very much, but I'm always curious as to what exactly that would look like. I'm not sure there's a technological solve for more effective age verification outside of you know, a, a government-authorized number that you have to input and maybe a photo or something along those lines because you're always going to have a problem uh, with people being able to say that they're older than they are on the internet, uh, and it's not a problem that has been solved to any great degree that I'm aware of. Uh, in the past couple years. I remember back in the day, uh, there was a video game called Leisure Suit Larry, uh, which is a silly game, but it's an adventure game by Sierra. And they had, either at the start of the game or shortly after the start of the game, they essentially had a quiz of things that they felt that people only over the age of majority, something like 18 or 20 years old, would know. So this game comes out, I think, in the 80s, and they start asking about 60s trivia, about Vietnam or Beatles or whatever it might be. Uh, And I remember looking at that, and I was whatever I was. I was 10 years old. Uh, And it was simple enough for me to get through that process. Uh, And, you know, the game was fun. The game was good. I don't feel like I was uh, permanently uh, harmed uh, by playing that game. Uh, But they had that kind of trivia component to try to have an effective age verification tool. Uh, And it was not an effective age verification tool, uh, as I can attest. Uh, Continuing with this summary... MPs on the committee have previously called for a new online harms regulator. They want somebody in the executive branch of the government to actually be a regulator focused on this issue, to hold social media platforms accountable for content or activity that harms individual users. The chair of the committee then has a few comments. Social media platforms and online game makers are locked in a relentless battle to capture ever more of people's attention, time, and money. Their business models are built on this. Like, I would argue most media companies' businesses are built on getting your attention. I think that's how you get people into the box office and whatnot. But it's time for them to be more responsible in dealing with the harms these technologies can cause for some users. We challenge the government to explain why loot boxes should be exempt from the Gambling Act. Now, we talk a lot about messaging and virtual legality, but that's a messaging issue right there. So what the government has said is not that they're exempt. An exemption is essentially a positive act. It says, this would otherwise apply to you, but you're exempt. 
When we did our gig economy video a couple days ago, we looked at a laundry list of exemptions to how California is going to treat independent contractors. You can be a freelance writer so long as you don't submit 35 pieces of uh, content to a given newspaper. You can be a freelance photographer on the same basis. Lawyers, you're always exempt because you wrote the laws. Uh, and so there are a series of things that are exemptions, but they would otherwise apply. Here, what the United Kingdom government has actually said is that this doesn't apply. There's no money or money's worth exchanging hands at the end of this transaction. So it's not an exemption. And you try to essentially steal a little bit of the baseline there. It, maybe not a full steal of second base for baseball metaphors, but at least you're creeping up towards a steal of second base because you're trying to say there's an exemption and we're trying to ask the government to explain why they're exempt. When the government, as far as we know, has already said there's no money or money's worth. They're asking for the government to speak on it more fully. It is unacceptable that some companies with millions of users and children among them should be so ill-equipped to talk to us about the potential harms of their products. This is essentially a saber rattling, right? They are upset that Electronic Arts showed up or that Epic showed up and didn't have a lot of thoughts to give to the United Kingdom government. Uh, and to some extent, I'm sympathetic to the committee that's seeking that information. On the other hand, I'm a corporate lawyer. I represent companies. And for the most part, outside of you showing me why I need to present that inf information or that evidence to you, I take a very circumspect look at you asking for that information, some of which is going to be trade secrets, some of which is going to be very valuable to my company. And so if I don't have a good reason to share it with you, I'm going to be reluctant to do so. And so I think you have to, as the government, show me why this is an important thing that I need to do from a corporate perspective. Uh, and I don't know that the United Kingdom succeeded in doing that. They essentially just rattled their saber and Electronic Arts and Epic said, we'll show up and talk, but we're going to have limited information to share with you. The chair's comment finishes at least the highlighted portion that I wanted to share with you. With both games, companies, and the social media platforms need to establish effective age verification tools, which we just talked about. Now let's get to the meat of the matter. What does this report say about loot boxes? It says loot box mechanics were found to be integral to major games companies' revenues with further evidence that they facilitated profits from problem gamblers, as one might expect. They have a similar kind of look to gambling. We've talked about that. We've talked about how the regulations maybe don't reflect the year 2019, and it's certainly worth looking at what they should reflect if you want to make sure that they're regulated. But they are undoubtedly integral to a number of companies' revenues, especially those that are marketing their games as free-to-play, especially in the mobile market. It says the report found current gambling legislation that excludes loot boxes, which it doesn't. We talked about loot boxes didn't exist in 2005, so they don't exclude loot boxes. They just don't apply to loot boxes because they do not meet the regulatory definition failed to adequately reflect people's real world experiences of spending in games. I don't mind that. I think that's an, it's a perfectly functional conclusion to come to. It's not necessarily the conclusion I would make, but it's a reasonable one to be made. And it says, hey, we're looking at this law, and even if you're right, it doesn't reflect how people are actually interacting with the real world. Okay, then I say, that makes sense. Then we need to change the law, or more specifically, you need to change the law if you're trying to address these issues. A lot of the times from a political standpoint, when we're talking about lawmakers and how this actually works, one of the things that Congress, or in this case, Parliament, tries to get around is getting put on the record, making big moves that they have to answer to their constituents on. And a lot of the times that looks like this. Dear executive branch, can you please handle this for us? This is a major problem. And that's what this amounts to. And what I'm saying is what needs to happen is these people need to come in and say the law doesn't do what it should do for the year 2019, and we need to change it. I'm okay with that. I think it's a debate worth having, and it's certainly something we'd cover on virtual legality if it was a debate that they had. 
But for this, for saying that they understand that it does not meet the current regulatory definition, that doesn't meet people's real world experiences, the current regulatory definition doesn't, then that's an issue that they have to address. It says loot boxes that can be bought with real world money and do not reveal their contents in advance should be considered games of chance played for money's worth and regulated by the Gambling Act. Now, like I said, the secretary at the Gambling Commission is going to have some authority to establish what money's worth means. So they could expand this. I'm not saying it's necessarily outside their ambit, outside the parameters of their job. They could say, for purposes of everything that you've talked about in this report, money's worth shall mean some description of what loot boxes do that hopefully doesn't capture the Magic the Gathering and trading card markets and things like that. That's something that they'd have to be cognizant of when they change those rules. Maybe they make it digital only, although I think splitting the market like that uh, could potentially be a problem. They have that power. I'm saying it's a bad use of that power because it's never been done before and because it makes sense if you want to cover it to have that used directly in the law. Continuing, the report calls for loot boxes that contain the element of chance not to be sold to children playing games and instead be earned through in-game credits. Now, I'm not sure that in-game credits actually solve the issue so much, but I have long talked in virtual legality, and you know that if you follow the channel to any great extent, about having things require credit cards require an actual issuance of credit to buy things in these games uh, because that is a transaction that requires an adult. It requires someone in the age of majority to have a credit card to be obligated under those contracts. And if they have access to the credit card, then it's reasonable to assume that the parent has consented to whatever kind of transaction that they are undertaking. I'm okay with that. And right now, I think that's the bulk of these transactions are done with credit cards. I'm okay with having some kind of prohibition on allowing games to use prepaid cards, to go into the GameStop, if they still exist by the time you hear this virtual legality, uh, to go into the GameStop, get a prepaid card for the PlayStation Network, use that, have the 20 bucks, and then use that 20 bucks on Overwatch. I think we can get around that. You have to have a live credit card at the time you make the transaction, and I'm generally okay with something along those lines if we're really worried about kids. I worry about laws and regulations and rules that hit more than that, hit more than kids, hit adults that otherwise should be permitted to make mistakes, to make bad decisions. Uh, I think that that has to be a consideration when you're talking about video games or you're talking about anything else. The next recommendation that they say is that the government should bring forward regulations under Section 6 of the Gambling Act, which we just looked at, in the next parliamentary session to specify that loot boxes are a game of chance played for money's worth. Again, they want the executive branch, they want the government to take this on themselves rather than to actually change the law, change the actual wording of what's happening here to address it directly. And I think that's a mistake. The long-term effects of gambling, they say they want the gaming industry to contribute financially to research. They also want game industry members to share aggregated player data with researchers as well so that they can be reviewed by an impartial body. That is going to be an issue, especially for multinational companies. As you probably know, data protection, data control is one of those issues that is well known in the UK, well known in the EU, starting to get better known in the United States. And even if you uh, make that data anonymous, even if you aggregate it before you go out the door with it, you're going to have issues with it. And as I said at the middle of this video, that's actual data that is of import and of value 
to the company that has created it and has spent resources gathering it. So I can be willing to bet that if anything like this went through, most of the gaming industry would be reluctant to share that information. Now, as with all kind of political questions, the more political pressure that is put on them, the more likely they are to do certain things to try to get that political pressure alleviated. And we might be at that inflection point now, although I sincerely doubt it. And certainly when you say they need to fund the research themselves, that creates its own problem. And it's something that if I were a member of the ESA or the IGDA or anybody else that has an, in, uh, an impact on these kinds of things, I would push against pretty hard. Uh, because for one, you really do want whatever research is done on this to be independent. And at the end of the day, if it's funded by the industry members, there's always going to be a question of that independence, especially if it comes out saying, hey, gambling's not a problem. Loot boxes are fine. If the actual industry winds up funding the researchers for that purpose, that's not a great look. So I think you do want that maximal independence. I think you do want to have, if you're going to have this research, be done by somebody that's separate even from the government as well as from the industry. And I think you lose that kind of ability to be treated as independent if you force them to pay for it. Finally, we have a discussion of the problems that they have with what the actual industry said to them. They said MPs found it difficult to get full and clear answers expressing disappointment at the way some representatives engaged with the inquiry, particularly in acknowledging what data is collected, how it is used, and the psychological underpinning of how products are designed. Representatives from the games industry were found to be willfully obtuse in answering questions about typical patterns of play, considered essential information in better understanding of engagement with gaming. The report questioned what companies had to hide, which is always my favorite little rhetorical device from the government. Uh, I deal with a lot of regulatory bodies. I've talked to a lot of regulatory institutions. And one of the things they like to fall back on is what do you have to hide? And I will say this, I might not have anything to hide. The problem I always have is that you've shown now with your report that you're invested in, in doing some damage to my current business model, maybe justifiably so. I'm not here sitting here on virtual legality to tell you that you're in the wrong. But if I'm the CEO of the company, if I'm general counsel for that company, and I make my members available to you in a sign of good faith, that doesn't mean I have to share with you every little detail about how my company operates. And if you find that obtuse, okay. Uh, but that's got to be a relationship between the industry and the government. Uh, and certainly if you've got a situation where the government is ready to bring down the regulatory hammer, the industry has to take that seriously. But I don't think it's fair to necessarily call them obtuse, unless you're talking about electronic arts, because I did see that hearing and they were pretty obtuse. Uh, it doesn't make much sense yet for you to send somebody to actually talk to them if you're electronic arts, if you're not going to say anything of value. Uh, so I can understand some resentment. I can understand people being upset that are on that committee and didn't get answers to questions that they thought were legitimate and that were raised uh, honestly and sincerely. Uh, but I also see the other side of the coin here, which is uh, I think when you're going and you're sitting in that and you know that basically all of the wind says that this is report is going to look a lot like this, you are going to be on the defensive. You are going to hold your cards close to your vest. And so I don't necessarily uh, judge the industry participants for that, uh, which is all a long way of saying, look, You've got the certain ability to change regulations. You've got the certain ability to change laws. Let's have this discussion out in the open. Let's have it out in the open in the United States. Let's have it out in the open in the UK and the EU. Let's have it out in the open everywhere so that people can come to determinations on their own about what they want to do with loot boxes, what they want to do with gaming, and get it on the books. Not have a secretary somewhere decide that this means this in 2019, only for the next administration or the next prime minister to come up in 2022 and say, now it means this. 
because that's the way you destroy industries. That's the way you really destroy the rule of law and people being able to follow law and follow legality, virtual or not. Uh, and so let's actually have those discussions. Let's not just recommend that existing words be reinterpreted to suit our ends. That's been Virtual Legality today. If you like this video, please like, please subscribe. We're talking a lot about these issues. In particular this week, we're talking a lot about government action. As we talked earlier this week about California's Assembly Bill Number 5 and what it's doing to treat current independent contractors as employees and why that might have a significant negative effect on the gaming industry. We've talked about corporate messaging with Spider-Man and Star Wars, what YouTube's having to deal with, with its child-directed facing channels and COPA. We do reviews of various things that I am invested in, such as Control, which you can see here, and another gambling video on our top line for uploads, which was about whether or not NBA 2K10's kind of casino slot machine was illegal under the United States laws. Obviously, this is a continuing subject of much interest in the video game industry and the software industry in 2019, and we will continue covering it in virtual legality. If you think anybody else might be interested in this video, please share it, please pass it along, get to the places on the internet where I can't get to. And if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you caught it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.